Welcome to another episode of Down Ballot Counts. I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor at Bloomberg Government. And with me, as always, is senior reporter Greg Giroux. We are back with a good show for you just as primary season is about to kick off in earnest. We're recording this Monday, May 2nd, a day before Ohio and Indiana begin a two-month stretch of weekly elections, setting up the matchups for November's midterms. Our guest today is our colleague Maria Curie, who will be talking about some of the messaging happening on the airwaves that could play a role in the midterm's outcome, specifically the mis- and disinformation in Spanish-language media. We'll chat with her in a few minutes. We were there with 99% of the precincts counted. Number of other key down-ballot races. This is a very dramatic turn. We will have to look. House will be in order. Chair requests that members clear the aisle, take seats, and cease audible conversation. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. But up first is Jero's Gem. Thank you, Kyle. Jero's Gem is a political number of note that I introduce on every episode of Down Ballot Counts. And my gem for this week is 13. Lucky number 13. That's the number of states that are holding primaries or primary runoff elections in the month of May. This busy stretch of elections commences this Tuesday in Ohio and Indiana. They are the first primary since Texas held the kickoff congressional primary back in March. We have a preview of the Ohio and Indiana elections on our website at about.bgov.com news. Other states holding primaries later this month include Nebraska, West Virginia, Idaho, Kentucky, North Carolina, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Alabama, Arkansas, and Georgia. There will also be primary runoffs in Texas. We'll have a lot more about the May primaries coming up later in the show. But 13, the number of states with primaries this month, that's your Jero's gem. Greg, how pumped are you for this? Excited. (laughs) We can feel it. All right, up next, we'll talk Spanish language disinformation. This is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Okay, joining us now is our Bloomberg Government tech reporter, Maria Curie. Maria, thanks so much for joining us. We're talking mis- and disinformation in Spanish-language media, both online and over the airwaves. Can we start real quickly by... um, What's the difference between mis- and disinformation? Sure. So misinformation is just any type of information that isn't accurate, but it's not necessarily being delivered with the intent to deceive someone. Disinformation is intentional and it's being propagated to mislead others. Okay. And and so you've been writing about this um, quite a bit recently. What what kinds of messages are we talking about and, and who's doing the communicating of them? Sure. So I've been focusing especially on Spanish language disinformation. Um, And it could be propagated from influencers, political commentators, um, or even government-sponsored media outlets. Um, And like you said, that's online and on the radio, so I can give you an example of each. So online, you have like Eduardo Menoni, for example. He's an influencer who says he has um, the best alternative information. We will also show you information from Latin America and the world. Having said this, we thank the Patriots who are connected right now on time. He has more than 180,000 subscribers on YouTube, and he's been spreading disinformation about the pandemic, um, you know, that people who are receiving the vaccine are dying most of the time. 
that the president's booster was staged at the White House. Um, and he calls himself anti-communist, which is strategic, um, because it plays into the fears of you know immigrants from Cuba or Venezuela who strongly oppose communism, socialism. You have on the radio um, Agustina Costa, who is the host of Cada Tarde. It, it um, you know, plays every afternoon um, from uh, through Actualidad Radio in South Florida. And he'll spread information, for example, about January 6th, and um, we'll say that there was no insurrection, not even a disturbance. There is one thing which is insurrection, then there's another which is disturbance. It's not even a disturbance because now we're seeing tens of thousands of people with their signs, with their flags, with their banners, but peacefully walking. He'll add a narrative that there's, quote, an evil intention to involve Trump with an insurrection so that they can, in the coming days, ask for his arrest and for him to be impeached. Um, and then last example here is RT en Español, which has been receiving a lot of uh, attention from lawmakers as well lately. This is another, uh, quote, alternative news outlet that's controlled by the Russian government. The Russian foreign ministry insists that the United States is using Ukraine as disposable material for its own interests. They have more than 18 million Facebook followers, and um, they've been spreading Russian propaganda about the invasion of Ukraine. Um, for example, that it's a special military operation, not a war, and it's for the protection of Ukrainians. Wow. Um, well, we know um, this this issue is getting uh, a ton of press right now, um, partly because uh, former President Obama just gave a, a speech on it, I think last week or, or the week before. Um, so he clearly sees this as a, a serious issue. Um, and, and it's one we've heard about for a long time now. Um, but why is it different when it's in Spanish language media versus English language media? Well, lawmakers and, and activists have been sounding the alarm about Spanish language media in particular um, for two reasons. I mean, some of it has to do with how Latinos consume information online compared to other groups, and then some of it has to do with how the Spanish media ecosystem functions. So to start with Latino behavior, um, Latinos tend to spend more time online than other groups and are increasingly using social media like YouTube, Facebook, and WhatsApp to get the news. Um, Latino adults are on YouTube twice as much as non-Latino adults, um, and Latinos use WhatsApp, the messaging app, um, more than any other ethnic group. About half of Latinos in the U.S. use it, and they'll use it to communicate with, you know, family back in um, their country of origin in Latin America. So it will, you know, this information will go across borders which plays into the unique ecosystem as well. Um, there are more resources to fact check English disinformation than Spanish information, disinformation. Um, and online, we also see that it takes longer for social media platforms to take down Spanish disinformation. Um, so it's reaching more people because it's lingering for longer on these websites. I mean, are we seeing more dis disinformation than we have in the past? Is it, is it become a, has it really kind of crest in the 2020 election? Is there any indication that it can, uh, uh, it's going to keep going up in 2022, or uh, what What can be done to kind of uh, combat uh, misinformation? I mean, who polices this stuff? Yeah, um, so there's there's no one. It's pretty much up to the, uh, the social media companies to kind of self-monitor 
Um, and that's one of the things that lawmakers are, are trying to address, but they are, um, it, it's a tricky issue to resolve because you don't want to get into First Amendment issues and, and freedom of speech and censorship. Um, but you have a lot of members of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, the House and Senate Administration Committees, which oversee elections, holding hearings on the issue, trying to learn more about it, sending letters to these social media companies to combat disinformation. Um, we saw a couple weeks ago a letter was sent to Mark Zuckerberg, um, specifically on RT en Español. You also have groups like Equis doing research, monitoring you know, how it's impacting Latino voters. There's a new coalition called NOMAS. It's made up of, a do of dozens of civil rights and social justice groups like the Miami Freedom Project and Florida Rising speaking out. Um, and you have consulting firms like We Are, we Are MAS. Um, which is focused on countering misinformation. As far as actual solutions, there's been a lot of focus on Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, um, and that provision basically protects companies from being liable uh, for the content that is posted on their platforms. So many lawmakers are focused on maybe taking away that liability shield for companies um, that, uh, you know, in certain instances, for example, if you have algorithms that promote disinformation, then maybe you shouldn't be protected by this law. And what were some, you know, consequential 2020 elections where we saw Spanish language misinformation and where should we be looking for it in 2022? Yeah, so um, experts will be really uh, careful to say, you know, to attribute direct causation and say this disinformation caused this candidate to lose. Um, I think that the most they'll say is that it's um, that these messages of false information are damaging to the to uh, the country's democratic systems. Um, but one lawmaker who did lose in 2020, her name is Debbie Mugarcel Powell, and she will attribute part of her loss to the disinformation that circulated in 2020, including that she was uh, a communist. Um, so really, in 2022, all elections are, are subject to this threat. And, uh, you know, places with large Latino voting blocks like Florida and Texas will continue to be good places to monitor for Spanish language disinfo. Beyond election disinformation, um, you re recently had a story about Russian disinformation on Facebook. Can you talk a little bit about what's happening with that? Yeah, so this was a letter um, that was sent by uh, Democratic uh, lawmakers, more than 20 of them um, from the House and the Senate, signed this letter to Mark Zuckerberg. Um, and, and this specific letter had to do with uh, the recent wave of disinformation related to the invasion of Ukraine. But it's directly tied to the election because these messages are spread with the intent of eroding trust in, in democratic systems, and in this case, in uh, President Biden. Um, and, you know, like I mentioned earlier, the disinformation includes, you know, this isn't actually a war, it's a special military operation. Um, another example that we've seen is that, you know, the president will uh, favor white migrants from Ukraine instead of migrants of color. Um, and something that I thought was really, was really important to understand too, um, Aikis, this research lab, they conducted a poll of 2,400 Latinos in February. And um, they found that it's not that the electorate is just blindly believing these outrageous lies. It's that they are just, you know, they're experiencing really intense skepticism to where they don't know what's real and what's not. They're just very uncertain about what facts are real. They don't necessarily believe the disinformation. 
Um, and so that uh, has really big implications for uh, our electoral system because people may not think it's worth it to go vote if they think the electoral system is rigged or they're not operating under the same set of facts. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it there for now. Maria, this is fascinating. Thank you so much for coming on the show to discuss your great reporting on this issue. Thanks. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. All right. Now it's time to talk politics, Greg. As you said earlier, we got a ton of elections uh, to watch. Um, what's, What's the top of your radar right now? Well, we've got those elections, Kyle, Tuesday in Ohio and Indiana. I think the marquee race this coming Tuesday is the Republican U.S. Senate primary in Ohio, which will offer an early window into Donald Trump's sway over the Republican electorate. The former president is backing J.D. Vance, the venture capitalist and author of the book Hillbilly Elegy, who, like many Republicans, was a critic of Trump in 2016 before becoming a Trump acolyte. His opponents include um, Josh Mandel, the former Ohio treasurer, who's also a very pro-Trump Republican. So, you know, Republicans are going to nominate, I think, a pro-Trump Republican unless they nominate Matt Dolan, a state senator who's urged primary voters to move on from relitigating the 2020 presidential election. Um, I'm also watching a Democratic primary in Ohio's 11th district in and around Cleveland between Congresswoman Chantel Brown and former state senator Nina Turner. This is a rematch of a special... Democratic House primary held last August that Brown won by six points after she was backed by the Democratic establishment and pro-Israel groups, and Turner had the backing of liberal groups and Senator Bernie Sanders. Brown is probably the favorite because she's running as the incumbent this time, and she's amassed a progressive party-line voting record during her short tenure. Those are the big races in Ohio I'm watching. There are a couple of Republican primaries in Indiana, but um, later this month, Cal, you've got... uh, the first of five primaries involving uh, two incumbents running against each other because of redistricting uh, in, in West Virginia. And then um, in some other states later this month, you know, you've got some incumbents in danger in North Carolina and Oregon and Idaho. And then you have some more Republican Senate primaries that will test Trump's clout in states like North Carolina and Pennsylvania. So uh, there's quite a lot uh Quite a lot, I think, these May primaries are going to tell us uh, about, you know, the direction of the Republican and Democratic uh, parties, Kyle. Yeah, that's right. And, and, you know, you mentioned that 11th district in Ohio, uh, Brown versus Turner. That one's fascinating because some of Brown's colleagues in the House have come out against her uh, for her colleague because, you know, they align uh, more politically uh, with Turner. And, and that's always a fascinating thing to see. Uh, West Virginia's second district, uh, Trump endorsed in that one. That's a member versus member Republican primary, um, that, which are always uh, very interesting uh, affairs. And uh, you've, of course, seen um, colleagues, uh, you know, joining one side or the other uh, there as well. Um, that's McKinley and Mooney. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of a uh, lot of fun races. Another dynamic I, I think is interesting is uh, uh, speaking of the Senate races in Ohio and Pennsylvania, I believe um Trump and Cruz have endorsed different people in both primaries. So you have a little bit of a, a Trump v. Cruz uh, um, matchup as well, uh, which, is, which should be fun. Yeah, I think that West Virginia race um, is really interesting. Not only, as I mentioned, it's the first of the five uh, incumbent versus incumbent primaries produced by redistricting. These are always very awkward races because you're basically running against a, a co-worker, you know, and often a friend. I mean, he's the, the, a person of your own state, of your own party. And as you mentioned, this race pits David McKinley, who's uh, 
defended his vote for a bipartisan infrastructure package. Um, he also voted for the bipartisan January 6th commission, which also irked uh, former President Trump, who was endorsing Alex Mooney, um, who uh, has a very conservative voting record. Uh, David McIntosh, the president of the Conservative Club for Growth, who's supporting Mooney, told our Bloomberg government colleague Emily Wilkins that this race is, quote, a bellwether for the heart and soul for the Republican majority that I think we're going to get in November, unquote. So um, that's an interesting race. McKinley has a geographic advantage after the two districts were merged, but uh, Mooney has uh, ample campaign funds and, of course, the backing of former President Trump. Uh, then we have Georgia. Uh, the Senate race, the Senate Republican primary there uh, doesn't look too competitive. Uh, Herschel Walker seems to be leading by a healthy margin, and he'll take on uh, Senator Raphael Warnock, who won a special election uh, in 2020, uh, the one that handed Democrats uh, the majority. Uh, but that governor's race is hot. Yeah, that governor's race for uh, the Republican nomination between incumbent Brian Kemp and former Senator David uh, Perdue, uh, who's challenging him, uh, trying to challenge him from the right and trying to make uh, Kemp's work in the 2020 presidential election an issue. He's blaming Kemp for uh, not trying to um, uh, you know, overturn the uh, election result there as Purdue has falsely claimed that the election was stolen from, from Donald Trump. And now uh, Purdue is trying to challenge Kemp in the primary. Uh, looks like Kemp has a pretty decent lead there, even with uh, Purdue uh, having Trump's endorsement. You also have uh, in a down-ballot race, the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. He's the one who certified the 2020 presidential election in Georgia in favor of Biden over Trump. He faces several Republican challengers, including Congressman uh, Jody Heiss. So Georgia is definitely a state to watch. As you mentioned, Kyle, it looks like the primaries for the U.S. Senate won't be competitive. Herschel Walker basically has no serious uh, opposition that would keep him from going to a runoff because he had Trump's endorsement early. Um, May 24th is the date of that primary. That's also the day of primary runoffs in Texas, where the marquee race will be the matchup between moderate blue dog Democrat Henry Cuellar and his more liberal primary challenger, immigration lawyer Jessica Cisneros. All right. Well, there's a lot to watch. We'll be all over it uh, and we'll be uh, back talking about it soon, I'm sure. That's it for us today. I'll note here that Michael Bloomberg, the majority owner of Bloomberg government's parent company, sought the Democratic presidential nomination in 2020 before endorsing Joe Biden. Down Ballot Counts was produced by David Schultz. You can follow us on Twitter at Kyle Trigstad and at Greg Giroux. And be sure to check out all the great politics coverage on Bloomberg government's website, about.bgov.com. Talk to you soon. You ever thought to yourself, how is that legal? Why is that legal? You ever seen a big trial in the news and wondered, what's really happening there? Have you ever pondered the question, why are lawyers the way that they are? And how much money do they really make anyway? These are the things we live and breathe at On The Merits, Bloomberg Law's weekly legal news podcast. On The Merits looks into the biggest stories playing out in the legal industry right now, and we feature the finest journalists covering the biggest legal stories from across the Bloomberg Law newsroom. On the Merits is hosted by me, David Schultz, and you can hear it wherever fine podcasts are found. Thanks for listening.